Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. This is an extraordinarily timely version of the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami always joined by Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. But today, for the entire A block of this podcast, we call it an A and B block, we're joined by Cameron Dawson, the Chief Investment Officer at New Edge Wealth, which is fantastic. Later on, Danny Moses and I had a wonderful conversation with Luke Groman, the founder of the unique macroeconomic research firm, Forest for the Trees. That comes out, Dan, FFTT, as it were. Get your Investopedia out for that one, by the way. You're gonna need your Investopedia for that. Danny, did you see the Forest for the Trees this week in the markets? Yeah, a little bit, we'll see. So, going through it. so I'm always inspired by certain events in my life, right? And this morning, I was watching the Bloomberg, this morning being Thursday morning. And I look up and like, that's Cameron. I mean, she's down there Double at the booked. Bloomberg studios. I'm like, that's fantastic. And she was talking about a certain something. She was talking about late cycle. Oddly enough, when I came into the studio today, what was on the radio? Bicycle races by Queen off the jazz album in 1978. I was in high school. I went to see Queen perform. One of the first things that, songs they sang at this tour was Bicycle Races. I won't tell you what happened, but I'm thinking, bicycle, 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 late cycle, late cycle, late cycle. That's exactly right. Did? You see what he did there? Late cycle. And Cameron hit I the nail on the head. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. That's that one? Ex- that's exactly right. And Cameron, I listened to you today. I've seen your Twitter account, and you're talking about this classic late cycle that we find ourselves in that A, the market doesn't seem to want to acknowledge, and B, the bond market is telling an entirely different story. There are so many counter trends going on here. Help us out. By the way, it's great to have you. Thank you for having me. On your mark, get set. Go. Let's go. Exactly. (laughs) Look, I think that there has been this notion because of how strong the equity market was coming off of the October low that at that point we reset the economic cycle. But we all know that the economy is not the market and that they can be on very different cycles. And so when we look around, we we of course avoided a recession this year thus far. We have very strong growth in the third quarter. 
we'll see how much that uh, of that is an anomaly as we roll into 2024. But I think the reality is that just because we haven't had a recession doesn't mean we won't eventually have one. And so when we define late cycle, it comes with the definition of low unemployment. Usually unemployment is the lowest before it starts to go up. It's whatever the inverse of darkest before the dawn is. And then from there, we have high interest rates, which are very prototypical late cycle. Cost of capital goes up. What you start seeing is the flies start to drop in weaker companies. And we're certainly starting to see evidence of that. Bankruptcies are ticking up. You've had high profile potential bankruptcies. Look at the news about Convoy today. Uh, you take a lot of venture capital company uh, money. It's a trucking stock. I think that's significant. You're starting to hear pockets of stress where interest rates are finally just now, just now starting to weigh on broader economic activity. It's just starting. It doesn't mean that we enter a recession immediately. But I think that eventually these higher rates will have an impact. And I think that that's what we're starting to see now. Well, one of the greatest economists out there, Elon Musk, realized <laughs> that the vast majority of people that buy a car have to figure out what their monthly payment is. And as rates move higher and interest eats that up, that's more difficult to purchase a car. So, you know, it's amazing his insights and, in, you know, into that. He also commented on people's credit card balances that if they're paying 20 percent and they can't pay it off, that tends to grow. And you know, those are the type of things that are happening right now. And if you could help him predict rates, then he would help you predict where his business is going to go. We're going to get into that later, but you bring up a great point, Cameron. And the one thing that's very different this time from, you know, 2006, seven and eight is that the big banks are well-reserved. So the crisis itself is not necessarily on the balance sheets of the banks. However, the turn in the credit cycle is here, both on the corporate and on the consumer side, and it's nothing catastrophic, but that has turned. So we do see mixed signals in the market. You see strong retail sales. You still see strong employment. But in effect, that might be bad news because if people could kind of bring that forward a little bit to what we know is going to happen, maybe then the Fed will relent a little bit. And listen, it's down to 0% chance of a hike this next rate cycle for the Fed for the next meeting. And then it's like 30%, which I think should just be zero. But you still see higher for longer in the marketplace. And this long end of the curve, which I know we're going to talk about, continues to kind of rates keep moving higher. And that's doing more than the work for the Fed. I think that's doing other damage to the point you just made. But I'd push back against this notion that somehow the market is just doing the work for the Fed because the Fed is the market. The Fed is the market because they bought $9 trillion worth of bonds to expand their balance sheet. That $9 trillion or just above has fallen by a trillion. They are a contributor as to why we are seeing interest rates move higher, because, yes, you've seen supply go up, but there's effectively a buyer's strike. You don't have the reach for safety, the flight to safety trade yet, because economic data is holding up. You have quantitative tightening. And then now we got the news this morning about big shifts in Japanese buying, big shifts in Chinese buying. So all of this kind of piles into effectively a buyer's strike that's driving yields higher, which the Fed, of course, has something to do with. All right. So it's three o'clock Thursday afternoon. Um, Fed Chair Powell, Powell spoke what, at noon today. And, and Guy, you mentioned this before, and I was trying to do the math in my head. I'm just going to do it in, in percentages. Guy was totaling all of the S&P points that had traveled today. OK, we have had four today, 
four 1% moves. Okay. Nice. So, so <laughs> two healthy. higher, two lower. We're at the lows of the day right now. We're down 75 basis points or so. And, and part of this is like you just mentioned, the market is starting to pay attention to some of this stuff. So we have a 10 year yield that's on the doorstep of 5%. And about a month ago, we we're like, all right, well, will equities care at 4%. Okay. Now we're wondering, will equities care at 5%. So today with Powell speaking, Danny just said a 0% probability at the November one meeting of a 25 basis point hike. When will equities really start to pay attention? Are the volatility bands starting to widen a little bit? We have a VIX above 20 for the first time in a while. Mm-hmm. Finally, finally. I mean, that's at least consistent with some kind of flush, which is what you need to see in order to see a true durable, like solid bottom in the market in both a short term and a medium term. The thing about valuations and interest rates, though, is that if you look historically, the average analysis are absolute garbage. They don't help you at all. So when somebody says interest rates at this level aren't a problem for equities and valuations, it just is masking over very different scenarios. So in the 1990s, the 10-year average 6.5%, but the S&P on a current multiple average 22.5%. Roll forward to the 2000s, 10-year average is 4%, but the S&P only averages 18 times earnings. So clearly there are other things that matter here. And it's when you get the confluence of high interest rates, which effectively pulls people in from being out the risk curve, you get better compensated for not taking as much risk. But then you have to layer on things like sentiment, growth expectations, positioning, And we know at the peak in July, we had peak sentiment. We had peak growth expectations. Maybe not. I mean, we've seen growth expectations turn up a little bit. And also positioning got very, very stretched. And that's when we were trading at 20 times forward earnings on $245 a share in 2024, which is 12% growth, no recession priced in. That's where you were very full in both your expectations for growth and valuation. So when all of those things come together, along with higher interest rates, that's when you're starting to see this market not be able to tolerate the higher interest rate move. It's interesting. There's this thought that next year, early next year or middle of next year, there's going to be Fed rate cuts. Maybe that happens. I'm not sure. But let's play it out and say that does happen. What would precipitate that? And is that a good thing for the equity market or a bad thing? It's a bad thing initially, and then it's a good thing. We think it's a very narrow window where the Fed is actually cutting interest rates. So the Fed has been talking about this notion of cutting interest rates just because inflation declines. I don't think that that's going to happen. The reason being is, A, first of all, they're afraid that inflation is going to come back. But the second reason is because of this dynamic that they're talking about with real interest rates. The idea is as inflation falls, real interest rates naturally go higher, real being nominal minus inflation. The problem with that is that if you look at inflation break-evens, they're already pricing in the Fed being successful of getting back towards 2%. So you've actually already priced in the moderation in inflation that they're saying is going to give them the air cover to lower interest rates. We think that the the scenario where they actually cut is one where unemployment has moved up and growth has slowed materially. And if that's the case, it's bad for your earnings estimates and it's bad for your sentiment and growth expectations initially. Now, eventually, it's good because you have increased liquidity, which helps bring people back to equity markets. But it is a two-stage process. And if you try to jump to the second stage before you go through stage one, that's where you could be caught flat-footed. Doesn't Blackstone really exemplify everything going on right now in the markets when you think about it, right? Almost trillion dollars in assets in or around. In the quarter, they had less distributed earnings than expected. They missed that number. 
They raised less capital than they thought. They granted they raised 25 billion, not the 32. Obviously, there's no IPO market or very small. There's less MA because of the cost of financing, lower asset sales because whoever wants to buy their assets obviously can't afford to do it. And most importantly, they sold simply self-storage to public storage, right? I think they needed that, so to speak, to virtually store all the things that they're gonna have to keep in their funds, <laughs> right? On on their balance sheet from now on. So that was like the one positive in the quarter. But to me, that exemplifies everything. How to adjust to higher rates, this lull. We saw it out of Morgan Stanley. Obviously, it was very pronounced with Morgan Stanley, I think, across the board. And the bank part of Morgan Stanley, the net interest income side, people forget, you know, that they're a bank also obviously hurt them. So all these things are happening, and those are normal cycle things that we see, Cameron, right, that are occurring. It's just happening at a time, to your point. And by the way, I'm not saying the Fed's not causing issue this, that they're not making people shy away from the rate market at all. And I'll add the point that you made. People all want to say, oh, China's selling our treasuries. You know, Japan is holding. But our treasury balance continues to grow, yet none of those foreign owners are, are buying more. So as a percentage basis, they're becoming less and less at the same time. So I don't know how we're going to cycle through this without a lot more volatility. I see the VIX staying above 20 for a pronounced period of time. And I think we're kind of here now. I will say October 19th, that date is not lost on me. 1987, freshman in college when the market crashed, my dad called me and said, you needed to go get a job. And I found myself an umpire for intramural softball shortly after that. But anyway, I just want to know that that is the actual day today. So that's not lost on me here as well. Yeah, I think that eventually these higher rates are going to bite. And as we talked earlier, it's just starting to happen now. And business models that were based on ever falling interest rates are going to be challenged at the end of the day. And that could look like general private equity that's just financial engineering. It could look like real estate that was deployed when interest rates were really low, valuations really high. And then things like rent assumptions were extremely aggressive to make sense of those valuations. I think the reason why that hasn't bit yet or why it's taken so long is just because of the dynamics of QE and the decade plus of QE that we had where people were able to term out their debt. Look, Powell got this question at the Economic Club of New York today, and he said, no, 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 nothing to see here. But the numbers are wildly different, meaning that the numbers would suggest that because of a decade and a half of QE, people's realized interest rates are far lower and they're taking longer to reset to monetary policy. We know that because 60 percent of the high yield index reset their bonds, refinanced their bonds in 2020 and 2021 at very low rates. We know that because the effective mortgage rates is an entire 400 basis points below what the actual mortgage rate is if you were to go out and buy a new mortgage. We know that because the effective rate for overall corporate debt is much lower than what the stated rate on the index is. So overall, eventually these bonds will have to be refinanced at much higher rates. And I think that the wake up moment is that it's not just higher rates on the short end now, it's higher rates on the long end, which when you start rolling forward that math, you go, hey, maybe a lot of business models don't make much sense. You mentioned something about the October lows of 2022 and what that might have been discounting. And so let, let's try to find, are there any silver linings here? You know, we're in Q3 earnings season right now, and we're going to get a lot of data. And a day like today is kind of interesting. You know, you have Netflix up 16%. Again, Again, yesterday, that was a $160 billion market cap company that was down 27% from its July highs. Okay, so fine. 
But on the flip side of that, you have Tesla that yesterday was a $770 billion market cap company that's now down 10%. This is the third consecutive day after they reported earnings that the stock is down 10%. There's something going on there with those fundamentals. But on a market cap basis that, you know, we can do that math, it, you know, the Tesla is more important. My question for you is that also in a day like today, I'm seeing a half a trillion dollar market cap company called Taiwan Semiconductor that makes chips, obviously, for all the smartphones and data centers and, and AI and, and the like here. That's up 4%. And what they had to say is that they're seeing stabilization in demand for, let's say, smartphones, for PCs, and obviously they're seeing good demand for AI chips. What does that mean to you? This has been a very important sector. The semiconductor sector is up 40%. You know, NVIDIA is up 200%. A lot of the enthusiasm, I think, about tech is, is centered around this space in particular. Thoughts there, because maybe um, should we be paying more attention to what Taiwan Semi is saying than what, let's say, downbeat Elon saying for all the reasons that Danny just mentioned too, because that is a financial sort of situation, I think, that's going on with Tesla, but also increased competition in China and the like. We've been in rolling recessions, right? There's been different pockets of weakness. And so because there's different pockets of weakness, there's also different pockets of strength, places that kind of hit their cyclical low and can stabilize and reaccelerate. Because you haven't had a broad recession, things have not cycled down together, which is why TSMC can come out and say, hey, pockets of the business are getting better. Because remember, last quarter, they actually guided to much weaker demand, not in the AI space, but in other parts of their business. So, I mean, looking overall, there's some interesting signs that all point different directions, right? So, for example, one of my favorite ratios is machinery stocks versus waste stocks within the industrials. Because when you look intrasector, you can say, here's a group of very cyclical names, machinery names, and here's a group of very defensive names, waste stocks, very stable, really good in recession. And what you see is that that ratio tends to lead the PMI. So when cyclicals are outperforming defensives, the PMI is accelerating. It's going from contraction to expansion. When machinery is underperforming the waste stocks, you see the PMI decelerating, going from expansion to contraction. We've been in contraction in the PMI for 12 months now. And there's a lot of expectation that we're going to turn the corner, round the corner. That would be consistent with what TSMC is saying. Hey, manufacturing's getting a little bit better in these cyclical businesses. But machinery versus waste broke hard yesterday, like really, really hard. That's a little bit of a yellow light. Maybe it's closer to a red light to say that should we really be asking the question when you add on top of it things like transports, what does that mean for a cyclical rebound? What does that mean for this expectation that we're going to go into a well above 50 PMI as we roll into 2024? I don't know because it's so many conflicting signals, but it's worth a watch. We started by talking about economic cycles and we're in a late cycle, but the reality is there are no more economic cycles. It's just credit cycles, right? And that's just my opinion. I would submit you know, the Fed put in the S&P 500 is probably 1,300 points lower than we are right now, if in fact there is one. The Fed put exists in one of two ways. The unemployment rate pushing towards 5%, which we're nowhere near right now yet, or some sort of credit event. And you're starting to see it around the edges. I look at the HYG, but there are other things as well. Anything out there that concerns you about sort of this potential credit cycle? You know, it's interesting because you're right that starting in 1989, every recession that we've had has had a credit aspect to it. So in the 2000s, it was a corporate balance sheet recession. You had a lot of restructuring that had to happen. Of course, in 2008, it was with housing and bank balance sheets. But 
prior to 1989, and that was the savings and loan crisis, you didn't necessarily have credit issues with recessions because a lot of them were business cycles driven by inflation and thus driven by Fed policy. So it would be interesting. And I think that was a lot of people's calls for a recession in 2023 is one that if you looked at corporate and consumer balance sheets, they weren't necessarily extended. And today they aren't even extended, right? Housing, if you look at households, their assets have been growing faster than their liabilities. There's been a couple blips, but for most of the past five, seven years, you look at the period going into the great financial crisis, liabilities were growing much faster than assets, which set you up for a credit correction. So household balance sheets, though they're getting more stretched, aren't to the point of exhaustion. Corporate balance sheets on the large end are okay because they termed out their debt. Where I'd be more concerned is smaller companies that's taken on a lot of floating rate debt. And I think it's the small and medium-sized business that could stumble this cycle because rates went up so far so fast and their businesses are not geared for that kind of debt servicing cost. So it would be a very different kind of credit cycle than what we've seen really any time recently simply because it's related to these small and medium-sized businesses, which has, in a good point, a lot of interplay with the shadow finance part of the funding market. Her comments now, Dan, are consistent with what Carter works, you know, these micro cap stocks and how they've rolled over and maybe they're a leading indicator for the economy. So that all makes sense. Cameron, Danny, I know you have some thoughts on this as well. Well, listen, we are having a credit event right now. It's just not a corporate credit event. It's it's a government credit event. I mean, spreads are widening here. Spreads are, you know, rates are moving higher and everything else will move with that pair of because if the quote, risk-free rate moves up and everything else does to Cameron's point about these smaller companies getting this type of financing. But guy, we're not 1,300 points away in the S&P from the Fed doing, quote, something. We are probably 50 basis points and 75 basis points away in 10-year yields from the Fed doing something. And the scary thing is, I'm not sure what they can do. Because if they want to stop quantitative tightening, pause that for a couple months, great. If they want to relax some of the you know standards that these banks have to have as far as the capital they have to hold to hold treasuries, Fine. Those are all small token things in the scheme of things. But until we get our house in order, you know, in terms of what's going on with the government debt and it's happening, that to me is the credit event. And everything we have gone through a generation of companies, Tesla, being used to these low rates, other companies, Blackstone, being used to these low rates for so long that money was effectively free. And now you have to incorporate that into your business. Now you got to run your business on what real cost of capital, higher cost of capital means. And that's what we're seeing is this readjustment. But guy, we're not 1,300 S&P. I think we're, you know, 50 basis points away in treasuries. That's my opinion. Well, hey, one thing here, you know, Cameron, we speak to a lot of strategists on Fast Money and on our pod and everything like that. You have this tremendous range. Now, you've been on our pod, I think this is probably the fourth time. Does that make sense over the last year or so? So it's here in May, I believe. Yeah, and, and, and you know, your ability, like, you didn't see a rundown. I just mentioned Taiwan Semi, and you went in on that. Are you the sort of strategist who digs into a lot of single names? Are you really interested in what the companies are saying? So, like, give us a sense for this earnings season. You know, Danny just mentioned the banks. Do you have any takeaways? And, and Danny, you know, we got to get your take on this. I think you had, like, a good, the bad, and the ugly for this week, because there was some pretty dramatic stuff that happened. I mean, I'm looking through good still, but go yeah, ahead. All right, Maybe fair, fair enough. Happen what, by the time we're done with this. G- give us a sense of some of the things that you've heard, some of the things you're focused on and maybe most focused on as we get deeper into earnings season on a single stock or a sector level? Yeah, I think the comments from the banks, which is one from JP Morgan that said normalization, not deterioration, is one that's interesting because what comes before deterioration is normalization. 
And the fact that we are seeing things like credit card delinquencies move higher, but they're only back to 2019 levels. Now, the rapidity of their jump, I think, is notable. And that's what JP Morgan's calling out to say, hey, yeah, they're up a lot from the lows, but they're not at the point that they're consistent with prior big down cycles. So it just means that the consumer can hang in there and continue to spend because they're not at the point of that full stretch and exhaustion. J.B. Hunt was really interesting this week. Um, This is a trucking company, truck brokerage company. And this relates to what I mentioned about Convoy as well, which speaks to the overcapacity that was put into the trucking market coming out of the pandemic. Uh, Of course, Amazon was a big part of that. But what happened is when you flood the market with capacity, that puts prices down And so what ended up happening is a lot of these trucking companies, truck brokerage companies, which are supposed to be asset light and and kind of cyclically resistant, ended up being caught with very, very low rates and having to, to push shipments out at below their cost. And so what we're starting to see is that there was this hope that transportation would come back. And, you know, if you're a a Dow theorist, you would say transports are very important. And there was this hope that transportation stocks would start to do better simply because you were seeing strong demand, which meant that you would have to see an inventory inventory restock. You'd have to see transportation demand move higher. And it's just not happening. And so that tells you something about underlying demand and companies' expectations for future growth. It's not just that. You, there's a cost of finance stuff that goes onto the trucks, right? So that comes with a fee every time you want it. So that's gotten more expensive. I will tell you, I have friends that are in that business, you know, they're talking firsthand that the slump kind of began and early March 2022. And now, I mean, if you're in the business and you can survive, it can get better because so much capacity is potentially coming out. But this goes back to inventories and restocking and depletion of inventories. And are we going to have that re-up? Because the thought has been you depleted a lot of inventories, just goods across the board, but we haven't seen, right, Cameron, a big pickup in goods and orders. And so that's pretty much what this is. And we're going into what should be a pretty busy season for shipments into the holiday season and so forth. And Hopefully it doesn't go off of a cliff, but it just tells you again, a lot of these businesses and a lot of companies were such on razor thin margin move in rates like this, what that can do to a business plan or business model that never that never got tested. It hasn't been tested in the last 15, 16 years. And I again back to the point, normalization, what you know, what what that means really. It's a really good reminder about the Magnificent Seven as well and the cyclicality that's in those businesses. It's really easy to look at the last three, four years and say these companies aren't cyclical because of what happened during the pandemic. But that was incredibly rare. So you think about Amazon having a big trucking footprint. You think about Meta selling ads to those small and medium-sized businesses. There is cyclicality. And even without a down cycle price in, what you see is a significant deceleration in the expected growth rate for the largest companies within the index. So they're set to grow earnings over 130% this quarter. You roll forward into 3Q2024, that's going to look a lot more like mid-teens, maybe low 20s. And so even without a recession priced in, that second derivative is starting to work against you when you think about the potential earnings growth for these names. Cameron, in your seat, how difficult is it to price in, to factor in everything that's going on on the geopolitical front? U.S.-China relations, the worst they've been in probably 50 or so years. Obviously, Russia ponying up with China, making it pretty much a big spectacle of their relationship. We know what's happening in the Middle East. None of these things obviously are particularly good on the humanitarian front, but none of them particularly good on the economic front either. The only thing from a geopolitical analysis that 
I can add is that if you ever see the chart or the analysis that lists out all the geopolitical events of the last 50 years, and it takes an average of the performance three months after, six months, nine months after, and says, no big deal. Look, there's no reaction. Take that analysis and burn it and throw it out. Because what it does is it compares something like the Yom Kippur War of 1973 that obviously sparked the OPEC oil embargo and a decade of inflation. And it compares it to something like the Kent State shootings. That's so asinine. So that analysis takes an average of events that have a huge dispersion. And some events don't have far-reaching consequences. Other events do. I would argue that we're still living with the consequences of the Ukraine war. And so as we think about geopolitical events around the world, I think that we have to keep our head on a swivel and we have to keep an open mind that just because something might seem contained today, it could proliferate. But that doesn't mean to sell everything and run for the hills. It just means that you have to take the data in as it comes and be able to be reactive. Yeah, I would say that you were talking about the Magnificent Seven. I think we should just go into the elephant in the room. I think it's now the Magnificent Six mm-hmm. um, in terms of <laughs> Tesla. I think it's been you know officially kicked out. And I think it's worth talking about because that one company, and you covered cyclicals, Cameron. I mean, you covered the industrials for a long time. You understand what this business, how it goes through cycles. And Elon Musk, everyone said it was a disaster conference call. Well, it was a disaster because he told the truth. What's kind of happening out there? And I think the bulls didn't get what they wanted from him. But I would think it was the most straightforward that he's been the entire time about, you know, what rates mean and what the consumer being stretched means and costs going up, what that means and trying to save costs. But I'll let Dan kick it off here. It's funny, Danny, I I think we got to give credit where credit's due. I've often called him an outright liar. You have too. I think a lot of his comments about when cars are going to be delivered, new cars. And I mean, even even the stuff on this cyber truck seems like a dream, to, to be very honest with you. But, you know, he was really honest. The statement that he read at the start of the call was really hard to listen to. He obviously loosened up a little bit, but he sounded really pessimistic. You know, but I have one issue and and I'd love to get your take on this, Danny, because I feel like they have some problems with math, especially after when when did their CFO leave? And that was like a Friday night dirty. Wasn't that like a couple months ago? And they've never even put a comment about it or anything like that. It's going to stay till the end of the year. Correct. Yeah. This was a tweet from Gary Black, who's a known bull in Tesla. And this was last night. Uh, He said, Elon is overplaying the macro card. Do the math. Payments on a Tesla Model Y at a 50,000 price today are far far lower than a 7.5 average interest rate on a five-year car loan than they were a year ago when the Model Y at $65,000 on an average price of 5.16. Assuming a 10% down payment in both periods, monthly payment today is $900. Monthly payment a year ago was $1,100. So he went on and on about this. Right. But Gary Black, who's long the stock and he wakes up every morning and and writes a tweet about all the positive catalysts for Tesla. And and he's just doing simple math and he tweets it out. And I'll make one last point. Gary Black's going to be on Fast Money. So by the time you're listening to this today, go listen to the appearance that he had. I don't understand that this guy sold. He said a third of his position in April when they reported their Q1 call, when the stock was one hundred and seventy five dollars because he was concerned about the deteriorating fundamentals right now. Like, like that was back in April. So I just want to make that point. So Danny, thoughts on that before we kick it over to maybe Cameron, who can give us some math lessons here, because he spent a lot of time on this, to your point, Danny. He's been loose always with kind of math and things in general. 
from a macro perspective, but when you look at just the numbers from Adam Jonas, and I'm using him just as the kind of the big bull in Tesla, his earnings for 2024 on a non-GAAP basis are now $2.41. I mean, so he didn't waste any time to slash from $3.89. The revised 2023 numbers are $3, down from $3.21 with only one quarter to go. So here you have, you're going to drop from 3 to two forty If that even happens next year, that's a cyclical. That's not, that's not a growth company, obviously. Then he made comments like, I can't believe what happened to Credit Suisse. Does he not pay attention to Greensill, Archegos, <laughs> all the scandals that they were involved in? You know, he's trying to throw blame a little bit out there, but I would be very scared. And the one other thing, Dan, and I've always said this, when your CFO leaves or your CEO leaves, GameStop, like I mentioned several months ago when those things were occurring, that stock's got cut in half. Granted, I'm not comparing those two companies at all. However, CEOs are somewhat similar. Why did Zach resign? And then you see this whistleblower news come out last Thursday evening, which got lost in the news cycle, and it should have lost a news cycle about what that was. And it was an internal employee at Tesla in late 2021 and an external technology consultant that filed, honestly, it's like 18,000 files or something that they have about how they misclassified warranty expense, how they hid stuff from Price Waterhouse, but how Price Waterhouse is conflicted because they also do consulting for other parts of their business and all these things. And they have snapshots of it. They have emails and they did a one-month investigation. The SEC had one person on and said, nah, nothing burger, nothing here. You have to believe that either that's coming back to the service or there's something else here. So maybe they're taking the opportunity to start to be honest with the street and talk about these numbers and things, and maybe they think they can slow burn their way back in. But you and I both know what happens. All of us in this room know what happens. When a stock starts to go down, a narrative starts to be created, and things can cascade on themselves to decide what is the reason for those things going down. And this is simple to say, it's transforming back into an auto company that has to go through a cycle, but it's also just false promises and things that have happened in the future. But I don't know who the incremental buyer is. I'll leave it there. I'll turn, turn well, it over. Sure, it's possibly. But well, here's here's one thing I want to make. Maybe this newfound honesty has to do with the fact that all the potential incentives that they would get from the IRA, all the potential orders, if they ever get that starship into the air, like at some point, the guy can't have the SEC breathing down his neck all the time if he's going to be getting billions and billions of dollars in orders from the government. Back to Cameron, this comment that Danny just made, like the MAG-7 is now the MAG-6, possibly. Now, listen, we're not going to be pressing. The last time this company, you know, disappointed, this was three months ago, the stock sold off 10% like it did the day after, and it went down a bit more. It went from 300 to 215, you know what I mean? And then it ripped right back. Okay. So my question to you is, do you think there's risk that we start losing some of these magnificent stocks that have been holding up the market? Our friend Carter Braxton Worth just told Guy and me earlier today, the Russell 3000, half the stocks in that index are below its October 2022 lows. Agatha Christie wrote a book about it. It was called, And Then There Were None. I think that for cyclical companies, what we are having to live through and discover now is the benefit of incremental margins to the upside and the detriment of decremental margins to the downside in the context of pricing power. And this is so important because when you can raise prices, it flows down to the bottom line. This is how we got record margins in the S&P 500 in late 21 and early 2022. Inflation's high, pricing power is high. And so revenue growth, it was running at mid-teens, mid-teens revenue growth. So margins are able to expand as revenue starts to decelerate, as folks like Tesla have pricing power issues, they've cut prices 
by 30% for some of the models and still are not meeting their delivery targets, which shows you that they're not able to push price at all. And, and compare that to Netflix, of course, that's raising prices, so they have a different dynamic happening. But what we're starting to see is this fading pricing power, which means slowing revenue growth, which by definition means margin compression, which is what the dynamic was in 2023. Then the question is, is if revenues actually fall for cyclical businesses, that's when your decremental margins kick in. And that was a term I remember there was a great article by Steve Tusa, who is the industrials analyst over at J.P. Morgan, and he's an absolute legend. And he wrote about decremental margins during the great financial crisis. And everybody's like, can you even define that? And so it's this idea that as revenues fall, you lose even more profit simply because you lose that fixed cost overhead. So if we have a recession, you have to factor in decremental margins. And it's a good thing to remember that the earnings recession we've been in over the last four quarters has only been about margins coming in and normalizing. It's not been about revenues falling because we haven't had an economic recession. She also wrote a book, Agatha Christie, The Mousetrap, and AI was the better mousetrap. That was mouse actually trap. a play. Okay, it wasn't there you a book. Go. <laughs> I'm just, yeah. So that, that, well, it was a play. You're talking, you're talking to somebody with encyclopedia knowledge <laughs> of so many topics here, guys. Mostly just old lady stuff, oh, clearly. Like, like, if you ever need to know anything about murder she wrote, I'm your gal. There you go. AI was the better mousetrap, and I think a large part of the reason we saw the market rally in the spring into the summer on the back of Silicon Valley was this whole AI craze. Has that sort of gone away? It certainly is fading. I mean, look at the price action in NVIDIA just from a technical perspective. It looks pretty distributive. I would look for the gap that when it gapped up back in May, that gap could very much close. It's sitting around the 200-day moving average, so that wouldn't be all too out of the out of the question. You can run the math on, on how much of a drawdown that would be. But I think that the last time we saw each other was at Fast Money, and we were talking about that day in July of Microsoft and that huge reversal or that pop and then the quick reversal the next day, that was the top tick on the optimism because if it couldn't hold the gains after they guided to the growth and estimates didn't go up with that growth, that showed you that it was a lot of talk, but it doesn't necessarily move the earnings needle in the near term. There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I track it pretty closely, what's going on in, in, in the private markets too. And you think about like an NVIDIA is a great example is that they literally had cornered the market on these high-end graphics chips. I mean, they, they were the only game in town. And now all of their customers are developing their own chips because they were so expensive, right? And also because NVIDIA is also competing with a lot of their customers on a lot of different areas. They want to create their own like sort of data centers to train these large language models and generate AM models. So, and then I also saw a headline today that Microsoft, who's obviously the largest investor in OpenAI, you know, OpenAI was working on this Arrakis. This was a lower cost model, large language model to chat GPT, and they just kind of flubbed it and they've just abandoned it. So this is the period where we're post the initial hype, right? And now it's kind of like, where are the commercialized products? You know what I mean? We still have Anthropic and OpenAI skipping up. It seems like five, $10 billion in valuation every week or so. So like, I think the fever has broken and it goes back to that period in July. I'll also mentioned one other thing, going back to Tesla for a second. So Elon mentioned these three main objectives, right? To kind of reduce the cost structure, okay, aggressively, you know, continue obviously cash flow generation. But the other one was AI 
investments. And this is not something that they had been talking about as their primary, you know, three sort of things. So their narrative has shifted now that the market is focused on these metrics as far as their auto business. You know what I mean? He wants to get this kind of AI pixie dust back into the story. Does that make sense a little bit to you or no? Yeah. One of the things that's been frustrating is to see strategists, big name ones, price in AI from a whole economy basis into forecasts as close as 2024. The reason I say that is that it's not to say that the technology isn't exciting, but it's fairly narrow technology, meaning that the step change function that we had in capability that came with ChatGPT is all about language. There's a lot of AI that's been around for a very long time. I covered the industrials for a while and we were doing machine learning with predictive analytics and and big data on the factory floor and jet engines and elevators. This has been going on. And what's interesting about that is that that's all a form of AI. And it created this incremental gain in productivity that quite interesting for those guys was competed away in price in the prior cycle. But the point is that this technology has been progressing for some time. There have been step changes. It's very exciting on the language side, but how that applies to the entire swath of the productive economy is a very different question. By the way, Guy, just a shout out to Burt Young, who passed away, yes. who played Polly in Rocky and all the Rockies, but specifically in Rocky Four, he had a robot that became his best friend. I would argue <laughs> that that robot was much more advanced than Optimus of what Musk tried to bring out and show his next generation that he, I think he commented on the call last night that sooner it'll be doing yoga, haha. But just a shout out to the great Paulie from Rocky who, who passed. Yeah, but I mean, Danny, again, you know, giving credit where it's due, if anyone's going to figure out robots and some of this stuff, it's likely to be Elon Musk. Okay. My only point is like how the narrative has shifted. You know, you mentioned Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley that now he's the bull. He was a bear for a long time. He put that crazy price target out and all his assumptions are based on AI and robots and all this other stuff. It's not really based on the electric vehicles. It's like, how do we get to full self-driving and what? So they're spending billions and billions of dollars with NVIDIA right now to kind of do all this stuff. So at some point, just like Microsoft had their moment and it reversed, at some point, this is going to weigh on Tesla too. And if the auto stuff is not weighing, the last point I'll just make here, Danny, and Cameron just mentioned this, it goes back to the math and maybe they've been doing funny math for a long time. He's been saying this price elasticity, they've cut prices and demand is not going up. They're delivering less cars. You know what I mean? So like to me, they have a math problem. Danny, we've had Jonathan Litt on Fast Money a couple times, and he's been extraordinarily negative in commercial real estate. That view's been manifested in Alexandra Real Estate Equities. ARE is a symbol there. That stock has been cut in half since December of 2021, more than cut in half. But there are a lot of things happening over the last week, week and a half since our last podcast that you want to take a look at. Yeah, I definitely want to get Cameron's thoughts on the commercial real estate market. But related to that, let me just bring up a name again who's been in the news is Carl Icahn, who separately spoke at a conference this week. And when asked about short sellers, he says, you know, I think there's a place for short sellers, but they tend to spread rumors, things that basically untrue or close to untrue. He's talking about Hindenburg, which kind of exposed Icahn himself for how he wrote down his nav or wrote up his nav in his fund and basically created a lot of problems for him and has since cut his dividend, et cetera. But with that, I want to talk about what Icon actually did in the commercial real estate sector, a trade that he put on, which he called Big Short 2.0, which was to buy credit default swaps on the CMBX 6, which was composed of 25 CMBS securities, mostly malls that were kind of out there because he was right and he felt that malls would default and he would cash in. First-hand knowledge of doing something like that, obviously, we bought CDS in the mortgage-backed security market and obviously 
we sold those, you know, at pennies on the dollar, we did not wait for them to go to the bankruptcy steps because I would have been the one that was sent there as the trader to go close it out. We had no idea how to do it. So I think many of these we closed, let's say at 10 cents on the dollar. Icon experienced a huge markup right out of the gate in 2020, I want to say of $900 million, and he grew the position up to $2.1 billion. Well, now fast forward to the process of actually the legal way to unwind this trade, and now it's gone against him. Putnam was on the other side of the trade. They sold the credit default swap protection basically to him. And you had a fund in Greenwich and then Morgan Stanley come in, and effectively when this thing was being serviced and about to be sold out of bankruptcy, came in and bid for a specific mall called Crossgates, which was a big component sorry, I don't want to lose people here, of the CMBX6, basically bid $162 million for this asset, which was above the appraised value. And lo and behold, just above the amount which would have triggered a default. So Icon's screaming bloody murder here, and he's not wrong that he got, quote, screwed on this. But again, I went off the beaten path here to kind of highlight commercial real estate. It's the old adage on Wall Street, you can be exactly right on something and not make money on it. But with that, we've seen the banks talk about commercial real estate. It's obviously a large elephant. I know it's a drag on the economy. So Cameron, give us your thoughts in general on what's going on out there in commercial real estate. Well, Guy, I thought you were going to sing The Gambler. No, 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 no. But that's if you want, Danny sings very well. <laughs> Look, I, I, I asked the I asked commercial real estate people the same question uh, each time I, I meet with them, which is that what closes the bid ask spread right now? Buyers and sellers are miles apart. And the reason that they're miles apart is because the sellers still want to be able to hold on to last year's valuation. But the buyers clearly know that there's stress. And the thing that closes the gap is refinancing. It's having to roll your debt. It's going to the bank and having the bank say, absolutely not. One of the things that's interesting, I just had this conversation this morning, though, is that there's still cash buyers, which just means that we're not seeing a lot of distress. If there was so much distress, and Danny knows this best, everybody goes hands up and says, I'm not doing anything because I have no idea how far this knife will fall. So there's still a, an appetite for risk, an appetite for people to step in at cap rates that are still only at where the 10-year treasury is or 100 basis points above, which isn't necessarily great for the kind of risk that you're taking on. So look, I think that stress is going to continue within commercial real estate. It's just a matter of time and how in the timing of when you see these refinances. One of the things that was interesting is we saw a lot of the junkier office rates rally a lot through the summer, along with all the other junkier beta liquidity parts of the market. And they were, if we look back, we'll probably call it the summer of dead cats, just because a lot of these moves have been reversed. A lot of them may not be at absolute lows for the year, but they're near relative lows versus the market. So if those moves haven't reversed, these are things that were overbought into downtrends by the time we got into July. And I think that's where you're probably going to see more shakeout and digestion. Yeah, we, we've been saying that. I mean, the, the market in the last kind of month or so has re reminded me a lot of Q4 2021 in a lot of ways. And some of the things that you just mentioned, I think, are, are really important. You know, there's been fits and starts in 2021, but it was upper left, bottom right for the most part for a lot of the worst stuff in the market. And I think we're seeing that again. Most of the sectors in the S&P are in correction mode right now, despite the fact that the S&P is still up. You know, eleven and a half percent on the year, and the Nasdaq's up more than thirty percent. Before we get out of here, we'd just love to hear what's your take on stocks into year end. You know, you hear all these kind of seasonality folks and, and this and that, or whatever. And you know, guy just mentioned, Danny just mentioned, it's the what thirty sixth anniversary of the crash. Some people have very long memories of this. I don't think any of us are calling for a crash or this and that, but a proper correction might be a nice thing for the S and P five hundred. Take a little bit of that froth. I think at per fact set, we're what eighteen times forward, and that's in line with like you know the the five ten year averages or so. How are you thinking about stocks into? 
year end. And I'm not going to ask for your 2024 outlook, but how do you think we start the year at the very least? So I think we could actually have the inverse dynamic of what we had into the end of the year of 2022 when it comes to leadership. Because if we have a rally, it would be driven by window dressing and chasing of positioning into the names that led this year with the all out selling of names that did poorly. Of course, that's what happened last year where the market was so weak into the end of the year because you had big, huge cap-weighted names like Apple, like Tesla, absolutely puking into the end of the year because of tax loss selling. That, of course, set you up for a really powerful rotation into those names in 2023. So I wouldn't be surprised if people are go through their portfolios and say, hey, healthcare's down 5%, Utes are down 4%. Let's sell those, recognize at least that loss, and then you pile into the names that look good. So when you know you see your end of your statement says, oh, well, I, I own the names that at least we're up this year. What that then sets you up for is another really powerful rotation going into 2024. You add on top of that all of those earnings dynamics that if you see the Magnificent Seven trade very strong into the end of the year, I think that sets you up for a very weak 24 for them. I think the weaker we are into the end of the year, the better odds we have of having a healthy 2024. The stronger we are into the end of the year, the better the odds that we have a very weak start to 2024. We have a great relationship with CME Group. Their Epic Equity Futures Trading Challenge starts this Sunday night. So check it out. We'll put it in the show notes. Be sure to sign up. If you take a screenshot of your sign up and flood Amanda's inbox, we'll get Give you a free hat, Dan. Oh, right. Wait, well, I don't get a free no, hat. You're going to get a, you you're yeah. of course going to. It's cmegroup.com slash equity challenge. It is a paper trading equity futures challenge. Danny, Guy, and myself did their bond trading challenge. I think it was last month. We did not fare particularly mm. well. We're going to do better this year. So go sign up, participate with us, send a screenshot to contact at riskreversal.com, and you're going to get a tricked out market call hat. That's the market call that Guy and I, and Danny's going to do it next week with us. You often do. We do it on live on YouTube, on our Risk Versal Media YouTube channel. So go follow us there. And we're going to be updating our equity future trading moves when that thing gets kicked off on Sunday night. So go do that. I hate to subject Cameron to this, but we've re- we have reached week seven in the NFL, the league where they play for pay. Danny Moses is 11 and seven. That is extraordinary. Good for you. That's yeoman's work, as they say. I believe this week, you have two picks for us. Mike Please. Tomlin, just so you know, <laughs> off of bye weeks for the Steelers is 12 and four and has not lost off of a bye week since 2016. I will take the Steelers plus three at the Rams. And then the Lions are probably the hottest team in football. And Baltimore is just squeaking by games. Lions getting three in Baltimore. So Steelers plus three. Lions plus three, but I will say the Steelers, loving them. Cameron, it's great having you. You came in from Florida, not to do Bloomberg, but to come on with us, and we're honored that you join us again. You will be back without question, hopefully early next year. This has been fun. Danny Moses, Dan Nathan, Cameron Dawson, and when we come back, Danny and I had a great conversation with Luke Roman. You're going to want to stick around for that. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. 
iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back, folks. We're joined by Luke Roman, founder of the unique macroeconomic research firm, Forest for the Trees. Luke, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm really excited to be here. It is exciting. And a lot of people will say and hear this, okay, you and Danny brought in basically your triplet to come in and reinforce your belief systems and dogma. That's not our intention. But going through your tweets and some of your work, it sounds as though a lot of the things that Danny, I think, are sort of lining up with some of the things that you think as well. It's a pretty interesting time in macro, in the economy, in the global economy uh, right now, for sure. Speak to me about the landscape right now, because seemingly everything around the world is lining up from the largesse of many of these central banks over the last 10 to 15 years. One of the most important macro economic developments happened in late 2013, very quietly, when the People's Bank of China came out and said, in essence, we're done buying treasuries. They said it's no longer in our interest to grow our holdings of FX reserves. But what that really said is we're not growing our holdings of treasury. And in 2014, global central bank holdings of treasuries, as a result, stopped growing. And so to my eyes, what I'm seeing in the global economy right now in terms of rate rises, in terms of some of the strains, the central bank actions, non-actions, I think it's really important to tie it back to that moment in time. Because what we start to see is a daisy chain of a process engaged by U.S. policymakers, both fiscal and at the Fed, to essentially run a playbook that is very familiar to people in emerging markets, investors in emerging markets, which is, oh, crap, we just lost a major source of foreign financing. Let's regulate the domestic private sector, banks, pensions, et cetera, into buying our debt to try to buy time. And we saw Argentina do that in the early 2000s. We saw Brazil do it, et cetera. It's sort of a time-honored playbook. And so if we go back 2013, China says this, 2014 global central bank holdings of treasuries stopped growing. What we then start to see is U.S. banking system regulated into holding more treasuries as high quality liquid assets starting in 2014. Then in 2015, uh, we see the U.S. money market fund industry shifted from private money market funds into government money market funds. The SEC regulates them into shifting their assets into T-bills as opposed to financing private enterprise. We see the dollar rise. We see LIBOR rise. We see symptoms starting already of dollar crowding out of U.S. government deficits crowding out global dollar markets, dollar up rates up. 2016, it comes to a head. We see some weakening in the dollar. However, 2017 or 18 under Trump, we see U.S. pensions, corporate pensions, incented, regulated in the tax law change 
into buying more treasuries. They get favorable tax treatment for doing so. Once again, and you get this stronger dollar, crowding out, et cetera. So to my eyes, what we've been seeing, and, and this has all finished with the Fed basically raising rates to incent U.S. retail into buying treasuries by raising the rate. Basically, the Fed, the Treasury Borrowing Advisory Committee reports have shown investment funds have bought between 60 and 70 percent of treasury issuance over the last year and a half because rates are higher. So to me, what we're really watching is the culmination of something that started in late 2013. And the issue is ultimately, it's a global sovereign debt crisis centered in the US. There aren't enough buyers for this stuff. And the Fed, who came in and helped out in 2019 with not QE, when the repo rate spike blew up, came out again in 2020 when we had uh, the off the run treasury market crash in the middle of the COVID crisis, something that had never happened before. That is standing aside. And so we're in this sort of debt spiral, basically. And I think it really comes down to a very binary outcome. Either there's going to be more dollar liquidity supplied soon, or the beatings in duration are going to keep rising. Because foreigners, they own a lot of this stuff already. Every tick higher in the dollar drives more foreign selling, drives the dollar high, et cetera, et cetera, drives deficits higher, drives issuance higher. So we're in this a very dangerous spot at the moment. This could get really bad really fast. In my eyes, it started in 2008. I know you think there was a major shift in 2013, but once we intervened and quantitative easing began, it's been very tough to wean off of. And to your point, we've had ebbs and flows with that. And things have happened along the way. In 2015, we tried to tighten, we stopped. 2018, 19, we tried to tighten, we stopped. And now we're on this path here that I believe, you know, got a little bit thwarted in sense of COVID hit in 2020. We injected a lot more liquidity so we didn't have to pay the piper. Then earlier this year with the bank issues with Silicon Valley signature, et cetera, another 500 billion comes in different form, but it still comes in as liquidity, as printing money. And then the debt ceiling, basically got lifted to be unlimited through January 2025. All those things just staved off, I think, what we're dealing with now. So this quantitative tightening has been going on. Good for them. They've gotten a trillion dollars down off the balance sheet for the Fed. Obviously, stuff's still going on. And now everyone's on Investopedia looking up treasury auctions. And you've done a great job of pointing out what will be on Investopedia months ahead of when it actually people started searching for it. So let me just shift this to what we're dealing with right now, which to me is the supply and demand of paper. Forget about trying to predict long-term inflation. And that's like the only thing for me, term premium. And I'd like you to walk through what term premium is for people out there as well, that we can point to making the long end of the curve make sense here. We have a lot of debt. That's the other thing that's happened since 2013 and 2008 is the tens of trillions of dollars of debt mounting, budget deficits, et cetera. So I threw a lot out at you, but I guess the trying to put this puzzle together on how we can stabilize this thing and get through this. What do you think is going to happen here? And is it about supply and demand that's making rates move higher from here on the long end? Yes, it is about supply and demand. And, and I think critically, it's about net effective supply of treasuries. And what do I mean by that is when the Fed embarked on this tightening program, they did under a misapprehension, several misapprehensions. The Fed has never tightened rates with debt to GDP at 120%. Never. After World War II, it was 110%. They inflated away the debt down to 50, 55% before they tried to tighten by inflating it away. They didn't do that. They have never tried to tighten from a starting point of structural U.S. deficits, fiscal deficits at 6% of GDP ever. When Volcker did what he did, debt to GDP 
was 25 to 30% and deficits were two, maybe 3% at the absolute bottom of the 82 period. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, from 1976 until 12, we'll say, there's something called the U.S. Net International Investment Position, uh, NIIP. It's just an equation of how many dollars of assets we own of foreigners versus how many dollar assets they own of ours. In 1976, the U.S. Net International Investment Position was a positive 10% of U.S. GDP. We own more of them than they owned of us. We had an offshore piggy bank that we could tap when we needed it. That steadily declined through the 80s, 90s, 2000s. By 2012, it was at negative 20% of US GDP. The reason that's important is because for those, I guess that's 35 years, 36 years, it meant that there was a playbook when combined with the lower debt to GDP, the lower deficits, and the lower net international investment position. The playbook was very clear. The Fed hikes rates, the dollar goes up, foreigners who borrowed in dollars get squeezed, they start to sell dollar assets. They don't have that many because the net international investment position is not that out of whack for the United States. And at any rate, we have a real economy that can offer a very diversified, non-financialized economy, at least for the first part of that period, that, that offsets those asset price hits. Foreigners run out of dollar assets. They devalue their currencies. We have then the crisis starts at the periphery and heads to the center. And then the Fed acts and we then they, they cut rates and we go up and we buy up foreign assets on the cheap, blah, blah, blah. And the cycle restarts. That is how it worked, chapter and verse, basically every cycle from 76 to 12. From 12 until 20, the U.S. net international investment position went from negative 20 to negative 70, 70 percent of GDP. That means foreigners now own roughly $18 trillion net of our assets more than we own of theirs. And we've allowed our economy to evolve such that the key marginal driver to consumption and tax receipts and ultimately GDP are asset prices. And of that $18 trillion, they have about $7.6 trillion in treasuries. So now you have a Fed that started tightening, assuming debt to GDP wasn't 120% of GDP, it was, that deficits weren't 6% on the way to eight where they are now of GDP, which they were, and that net international investment position was still where it was from 76 to 12 when it was actually far, far lower. What does this mean for the treasury supply demand issue? And that's why I say it's net effective supply is now these foreigners are also by virtue of what Fed policy of keeping rates at zero for so long, they've gone out and borrowed in dollars to the tune of $13 trillion offshore. So they are short $13 trillion on one side and they are long $18 trillion in assets, including 7.6 trillion in treasuries. So as the Fed tightens, the dollar starts going up as we crowd out global dollar markets. What do foreigners do? They start selling dollars and their dollar assets to get the dollars to service their debt. Except unlike 76 to 12, they've got nothing but supply, right? So every tick higher in the dollar, they have 7.6 trillion in treasuries they can sell and they've only just started to sell them. Then we also go back to the regulation from 2013 to here of regulating the U.S. domestic sector into buying treasuries. The U.S. banking system, which is having credit issues around the rise in rates, now owns $4.1 trillion in treasuries and mortgage backs that they were regulated into buying as high quality liquid assets that they could sell with no problem when their credit went bad, when there was a crisis. We had a crisis earlier this year and we saw what happened. The Fed's like, no, 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 don't sell those into an already sloppy treasury market. We'll just do the BTFP and we'll write that up. We'll write that up to par for you and swap you the money. It was QE, like you said, Danny. So as the dollar goes up, 
it's not just what's the deficit picture, which, by the way, is a friggin' disaster, right? We've got the U.S.'s borrowing net, I think, in the back half of this year, $1.85 trillion, and we haven't even fully reset interest, right? So you're going to be looking at a $2 trillion deficit just for, for round math next year. To the extent the Fed does not supply the liquidity needed or Treasury, supply the dollar liquidity needed to keep the dollar from rising or rates from rising because we will be crowding out global dollar markets, foreigners will see the effective currency hit, right? The the dollar adjusted level of their 13 trillion in dollar borrowings go up. They're going to sell to raise dollars to address that. What are they going to sell? They're going to sell what they can, not necessarily what they want to. What can they sell? Treasuries. How much do they have? 7.6 trillion. So it's 2 trillion plus some portion of 7.6. Plus that's going to drive rates up because we already know global balance sheet isn't sufficient to absorb all the stuff we're selling, we're, we're getting. So now rates are going to go up and you're going to reset commercial real estate. You reset commercial real estate. Now the banks are going, oh, God, they're going to be taking credit losses on that, on consumer, on eventually autos, on eventually all of it. And what do they have to sell that they can raise capital? Because they don't want to raise capital down here selling equity. They've got $4.1 trillion in, in treasuries and mortgage backs. Who are they going to sell that to? I don't know. Mom and pop retail? Because, oh, by the way, their pensions got plugged with it, too. So you see there's this extremely pro-cyclical dynamic where net effective treasury supply, it's not this, it's this. And every tick higher in the dollar and every tick higher in oil, because that's another dollar sink. To the extent oil prices rise high enough that it pushes oil importing creditor nations of the United States, like Japan, like China, like Europe, into a current account deficit where they have to, finan they have to finance a current account deficit, Guess what they're going to sell to finance their current account deficit? Their central banks own $3.8 trillion in treasuries, 3.6 at the long end. And I guess one last point about the net effect of supply. One of the biggest marginal buyers for treasuries over the last six months has been the uh, hedge fund relative value trade, which FT three weeks ago said is levered somewhere 50 to 500x. Now, they're long a cash treasury. They're short a future. So they're not going to lose. They're, they're, they're hedged. They're basically picking up you know, a few pennies and leveraging it 50 to 500 times to make the returns. However, as you guys know, if the volatility in the treasury market or really in any market in any of the books in the hedge fund, once the realized vol over the last 30, 60 days, whatever, hits a certain level, their risk managers come tap them on the shoulder and say, you're 50x on this relative value trade. You got to go to 25 or whatever. Guess what they sell? Treasuries. So now your biggest marginal buyer. So basically, net treasury supply is going to rise way faster, way quicker, and rates are going to rise way faster, way quicker than most people think, unless the dollar is weakened meaningfully and oil is weakened meaningfully ASAP. So we've talked about the leverage in the system on the show many times, but prior to moving our way around the globe here, what can the Fed really do? And when I say that, I'm including Treasury and the Fed. Can they lower SLR requirements at some of these banks? Can they delay the implementation of Basel III? Can they delay QT? Because it feels like anything that they try to do in that regard would be inflationary and only exacerbate the problem. And I think people are conditioned to believe we have a whole generation of traders that only know that the quote Fed has your back or global central banks has your back. Just real quick, if you just touch on it for a minute, what do you think will be done if we get into a situation where yields just start to run away from us to the upside? Great point. It's mechanically 
If they do anything, lower SLR requirements like they did in March 2020, uh, QE, BTFP, not QE, anything Treasury or Fed that injects liquid run down the TGA, mechanically, that will slow or stop the rise in rates at the long end for a moment and maybe for a quarter or two. But your, your, your question gets really, I think, to the heart of the matter when it's a great one, which is, will that be the moment where the markets do go, oh, gosh, they are addressing an issue of inflation, right? The deficit of losing the long end by printing money. And in that case, you're now into a situation where if they don't inject dollar liquidity, they lose the long end. If, if money's too tight, they lose the long end. If they inject the money, they lose the long end. And that is something that has not been seen in the West in a hundred years. And so nobody is ready for it. You know, if you, we have people in Argentina, it's like the meme with uh, Wolf of Wall Street, right? Where he's holding the beer going, I know that. I know that episode. And that is where we are right now. And, you know, the $64,000 question, I think, for markets is, if they inject more dollar liquidity, will it buy us time and how much time will it buy us? Or are we over already over the event thresh horizon, if you will, where not enough dollar liquidity means the long end, they lose the long end, and more dollar liquidity means they lose the long end too. And the what I'll excuse me, what I'll say on that is the reaction of the 10-year and the 30 of the long end in the United States to the events of the last week are not encouraging. When I was in high school, the highlights of my week, there are a few, but Sundays we used to go to the Ossining Bakery and get jelly donuts. And then I'd go home, have my jelly donuts with a cup of coffee and read the Sunday edition of the sports section for the New York Post. This, what I'm listening to now, is totally eclipsed that experience for me. This Listening to you, you're just reinforcing all the things that I thought for a while. You're doing it in a much more eloquent way. So here we go, as Danny mentioned. Let's go to Japan. But quickly, not that it particularly matters. I thought debt to GDP in this country was closer to 140%. But you know what? North of 120, it almost doesn't matter because I don't think there's been any developed country in the history of mankind that's been able to recover from that type of debt to, debt to GDP levels. And you can go back to the Roman Empire, uh, pre-World War I Germany, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, the whole thing. People say it can't happen here. I don't know. Maybe not. We'll see. But Danny and I and Dan did a podcast probably over a month ago or so, and we entitled it Turning Japanese, obviously, so an homage to that great song. I think it was The Vapors. But our point was there are things happening in Japan right now that people are not paying attention to. And you've just touched on it, but still the largest holder of our treasuries, I believe. They're in a currency crisis without question. They need to do what they can to defend their currency, the yen, against the dollar, which is now approaching 150. That seems to be the line in the sand. That's problematic. And I don't think people realize how problematic that potentially could be if the dollar continues to appreciate versus the yen. It's an absolute catalyst and accelerant to everything I just described. What's happening with the yen is like gasoline on a raging fire already for the treasury market and for this net effect of treasury supply, because that's exactly it. Now, remember what I said before about the net international investment position of the United States deteriorating to negative 65 or 70% of GDP over the last 10 years. Japan is the flip side. 
people have often said to me, our debt to GDP is only below Japan's. And so we're just going to have a couple lost decades like Japan. And no, the Japanization of the United States is going to look and feel a lot like Argentina with U.S. characteristics for a couple reasons. Number one, Japan has they have the flip side to our negative net international investment position. Their net international investment position is positive. Call it. I want to say last time I checked, it was like 60, 60 percent of GDP. What does that mean in practical terms? It means when they start to lose the long end or they start to lose the currency, they have the option of ring, ring, hi, America, it's Japan, give us our dollar assets back now. And what that does is it throws it onto the lap of the Fed. It, it's, it adds to that net effect of treasury supplies. A practical matter, they own you know, a trillion in treasuries, a bunch of agencies, and they will sell those to raise dollars to finance or defend their currency. And they've been doing that a bit, but not necessarily that aggressive yet, if you believe the data in terms of what they've sold. Critically, and we saw this last year and wrote about it for clients last uh, June of 2022, once the war hit and oil prices spiked, it's the same dynamic. You can read headlines in the summer of 2022, Japan pushed into current account deficit for first time in it was probably practically probably first time since Fukushima when they had to shut down all their nukes and they had to import a bunch of gas uh, in 2011. What do they do to finance their current account deficit? They sell dollar assets. They have this offshore piggy bank. The flip side is that the United States doesn't have that piggy bank. Our net international investment position is negative. There is no piggy bank. The piggy bank is, hey, Fed, print more. That's it. Or let rates find their level, which you can do when you're Paul Volcker and debt to GDP is 30%, because you can let rates go to 6, 8, 10, 15, when there's no credible threat of bankrupting the United States government. With debt to GDP at 120, there is. And when I say bankrupt, of course, we can't run out of the money, but there is a rate somewhere between here and 15, where pro forma, over 100% of tax receipts will be spent on just the interest, and that's game over. When you have to print the VIG, you're done. And the market will sniff that out way ahead of time. And I don't even think it's on the other side of 10, to be honest. That's what we're getting. And I, so I think Japan is, guy to your point, so critical to pay attention to because every time the yen pops above 150, you can just, it's a phone call to Washington, sell more treasuries, we need the dollars to defend the currency. Or anytime oil pops up and gets them, hey, we need oil, we need gas sell dollars, sell dollar assets to get us the dollars to buy what we need. So Luke, we waited 25 minutes because all roads in our world guys lead to gold. And you actually, I think, put out a tweet that the equivalent of the big short in 2006 of buying credit protection on some of these mortgage bonds is equivalent now with gold, you consider it fire insurance. And you put Bitcoin in there. We'll leave that for another show. That's not our area necessarily. But let's talk about gold for a minute because it has separated itself. We talked about this last week. For the first time, while rates are moving higher and the dollar was moving higher, it held and actually moved up geopolitics, et cetera, out there. So give us your thoughts on gold here. And it's Guy's belief, and he's been talking about this a long time in mind, that it's completely underowned. The global central banks may be hoarding it, but, quote, no one owns it. The institutions don't own it. And what does the gold environment look like when that moment comes, which looks like we might be on the precipice of? Nobody owns it. You look at whatever, $130 trillion debt market globally. You know, if you went chapter and verse through all the major bond fund investors, hey, how what percentage of your bond fund is in gold? And not just unallocated gold or GLD, 
physical bullion allocated somewhere. Okay, I got to leave. This is, I can't even begin. Like my head's exploding. I've never I, seen guys I have, smile. I, I have found kindred spirit. I, like this is, cr- anyways, I'm sorry, Luke. Please continue. By the way, Luke, prior to you continuing at the very end of this, be helpful how people should be buying gold because we have our thoughts, but I want to get your thoughts on that. So please sure. go on the gold, sure. go on your gold train here. When you run through what we just spent the first part of the show running through, what becomes clear, what I'm saying and, and what you're saying when we're at this spot and, and whether it's like right now or it's in six months, it's coming. The spot where maybe it's a year, but I don't think it's longer than that, where if central banks, if the Fed doesn't inject more liquidity, they lose the long end. And if they do inject the liquidity, they lose the long end. What that means in plain English is the risk-free asset, U.S. Treasury bonds, for the first time in anyone alive's career, have either credit risk or inflation risk. And this is the risk-free asset, pristine collateral that underpins everything else. So we know with a high degree of certainty, ultimately, there is a price where the Fed's going to say no mas. We're capping it here. We're going to let the dollar go. We're going to let the balance sheet go. I don't know when that is. I think we're much closer to that than most people think. But in the end, the message of what gold has done since the war, it started a little. But when you really look at a chart, a long-term chart of gold against U.S. real rates, inverted real rates, right, and you see this divergence, there's a little bit of the divergence where gold sort of goes, it's still moving in the same direction as real rates. And then in September 2022, when the UK gilt market blew up and Yellen came in and ran down the TGA and the dollar weakened by 15% or so in four months from call it October of 22 through January of 23, that's where you see gold move in a different direction. It's really splits. And so I think that was the moment in time where the gold market started warning anyone that would listen, they just showed you who they are, right? It's like Dennis Green, right? They are who they thought we were. And the message was the Fed was only able to raise rates for six months until they broke a sovereign debt market. They broke the guilt market. Oh, by the way, no one ever talks about it because it's esoteric, but the US Treasury move volatility index as the guilt market was breaking, was at like 150, 160. And the creator of that index is saying like, Anything over 150, the Fed's completely lost control, right? Harley Bassman, who's a brilliant guy, said- Okay, he- that's it. I'm leaving. This is like- Danny, <laughs> save my tell head. him. Tell I him. I might save my head. No, I- <laughs> Hold on. But bringing it back towards where can gold go, what is the real signal you're looking for? I think you indicated we've already had it, that it's green, it's go time here on gold. Because to me, risk reward-wise, I don't see any downside. When I say any- could it retreat 50, 100 bucks? Sure. Temperature cools down geopolitically, of course. But to me, that's every pullback is a buying opportunity. But again, tell us how people should be looking to play that. We're not a big believer in GLD. If, if you have to buy something like that, a closed-in fund, PHYS, at least yeah, they own the physical something. Maybe tell people how they should express it and how you would tell them to allocate it. I know that's not what you do, per se, is tell people what to buy, per se. But I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I, I think you want to own physical bullion, ideally. I, I prefer coins, if for no other reason, then they're harder to counterfeit. There is some concern. The bigger the bar, the easier and more profitable it is to counterfeit. So you just have to got to be careful unless you're really a professional and can say it, all that stuff. I agree with you. GLD for me is a trading vehicle. It is not how I would express it. If you can't own the physical bullion, like you said, a closed end fund, like a PHYS as a way of expressing it. In terms of where it can go, I, 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 the no downside and and where it can go, 
I agree 100% in terms of, yeah, can you get a trading move down of 100, 200, bucks, whatever? Yeah, I don't care. It's an absolute buying opportunity because the compounding interest is what it is. It is not stopping. This thing's like the Terminator, right? It's not going to stop. It doesn't sleep. The compounding interest of where they are is just going to keep coming. And so to me, physical gold might be one of, if not the cheapest asset on the board. And the chart I showed that I tweeted out that you referenced earlier, Danny, I look at it as it's almost like a gold PE ratio to me. It is the market value of US official gold as a percentage of the foreign held U.S. treasuries outstanding. And so what that is, is just the market value of gold times 8,100 tons of gold that the U.S. officially owns divided by the amount of foreign held treasuries out there. And what this chart shows going back to 1970 is prior to 1989, when the USSR collapsed, which was when we went to a unipolar world, that percentage, the gold as a percent of foreign held treasuries was never below 20% of the foreign held treasuries outstanding. Today, it's seven, maybe 8%. And for most of the time, it was 40%. That basically foreign held debt was 40% collateralized by the market value of US official gold. When things really got iffy for the dollar, for treasuries, et cetera, in the early 80s, that percentage went to 130%. So that's when people say, oh, that was a gold bubble. The gold bubble was when 1980, the market value of official gold is 130%. That means that everybody in the world who owned a treasury could have showed it up at our door, demanded gold, gotten their gold in the face value of the treasuries they held, and we still would have had 30% of our gold left over. Our debt was 130, foreign debt was 130% gold collateralized. Today it's seven, maybe 8% collateralized. Minimum, if we just take it back to the last time we were in a global strategic competition with a peer or near peer power in 1989, the percentage was 20. That means gold's got to triple just to get us back to there. And if we go back to when we were in the really heated parts of the Cold War, on average, it was 40, which means gold would have to go up almost 6x just to get us back to that level. And those percentages just give you an idea of how insane our debt has grown over the last 30 years. There's a smile on my face because everything you've been talking about for the last 30 minutes are things that I have believed, but I'm, I sometimes struggle with because the world is not manifesting itself in the way that it theoretically should. And you start talking about the move index. When I started my career in the 1986, if the bond market moved a couple basis points over the couple of days, it was front page news. Now we move now with a much lower denominator, 15 18 basis points over the course of an hour, and nobody thinks that's a big deal. I've said the bond market trades like $150 million biotech stock with one drug in the pipeline. It's completely broken, number one. Number two, January, I think, of 2013, seemingly out of nowhere, the Bundesbank decides, they wake up and decide, you know what, we want our gold back. They want to repatriate their gold. You have to ask yourself, why? What did they see? They didn't just wake up and decide to do that. They clearly saw something happening. Last year, 2022, global central banks bought 1,221 tons of gold for approximately $70 billion, record amount, on course to do similar this year. They are hedging their own ineptitude. I have said that countless times now. They see exactly what you're talking about, but they will never admit it. And I'll say this for the last time. 
Fed watches a lot of things. If the gold genie gets out of the bottle, it is going to scare the collective shit out of them because they know what it signifies. I agree entirely on, on everything you said. I think gold is ultimately how they get out of this. There are provisions in the Fed Federal Reserve Bank operating manual by which the Treasury, United States Treasury Secretary, can instruct the Fed to write up the U.S.'s gold and the accounting treatment of that is a deposit, free and clear, no debt attached to it, into the U.S. Treasury general account. So at 261 million ounces, or 8,000 tons, every $4,000 per ounce that the Treasury were to instruct the Fed to write up the gold would deposit roughly a trillion dollars, 4,000 times 261 million ounces, into the TGA. If you said, Luke, your Treasury secretary, how can you get out of this? We need to get our debt to GDP down right away. How do we get out of this debt spiral? I call up the Fed. I say, Powell, it's over. You've lost the long end no matter what you do. Right up the goal to, I don't know, uh, We have a, it's a $24 trillion treasury market. Prices are probably down, what, at, mark, at face value 30% on average over the last two, three years. So the real market value of the U.S. treasury market, I don't know, is it? 12 trillion, say it's 15 trillion for round math. I'm going to write up the gold by 5 trillion. If I write up the gold by 5 trillion, every trillion is 4,000 bucks. So that's $20,000. And I get 5 trillion deposited into the TGA free and clear. I go out into the market and I buy back a third of the US debt outstanding. Now it's a $10 trillion market value market against GDP of 27 trillion, give or take. Voila, we've gone from 120 to 40% in one stroke. Thank you for your donation, Treasury holders. Now, inflation rips. The dollar probably sells off quite a bit. But that's all in the cake. That's going to happen no matter what at this point. That's first thought. Real quick, second thought. I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the premium in Shanghai on gold. But it's been trading at a 6% premium. Tell them. We talk about, oh my God. I Yes. Historically, if a gold was at a premium in Shanghai... It just means the yuan's going to weaken because we control the price of gold. It's a, the dollar controls the price of gold in London. However, because there is now a yuan oil contract, now you can buy commodities in yuan. Thank you, Russia and China. A 6% premium in Shanghai for gold is going to send gold that way. But gold, because there's now yuan oil, there's not just dollar oil. As long as there's only dollar oil, it just meant the yuan was going to weaken. Now, because there's yuan oil and yuan gold, now you have a different gold to oil ratio in China than you do in the West. And oh, by the way, starting in January, China just said we're going to sell or Russia just said we're going to sell China gas at half the price we sell to Europe. So gold is going to buy you a lot more oil and a lot more gas in China than it does in the West. So law of one price says you can't have two prices for the same commodity. So the yuan oil and gas is going to force, in the presence of that Shanghai premium, is going to drive gold to China. And if we were starting to see this, we would see London and COMEX gold vaults being drained. Guess what's happening? London and COMEX. It's literally like the 60s all over again. It, the, the Middle East war isn't the only thing. It's like the 70s again, 60s and 70s again. China's draining our gold using yuan oil. So I think as well, this will accelerate this whole machinery, whether the Fed and Treasury decide they want to do this or not. I will tell you that I've never seen a guy this excited, but I will tell you two things. You just created a new acronym. I'm not sure if it already is Federal Reserve Operating Manual. That's from. And then you obviously just created a lot more security around Fort Knox. 
because everything you're describing. No, can I tell you something? I'm curious as to your thoughts. Everything you said is accurate. There's a problem with what you said, I think. I own a 2002 Tahoe, okay? I put it on Facebook Live or whatever the hell the thing is to sell it, $5,000. And five minutes later, some guy shows up at my door and says, you know what, here's five grand. I own the Tahoe, but you know what, guy? Do me a favor and store it for me. I don't have no place to put it. I'm like, that's okay. That's a good deal. 10 minutes later, another guy just comes up and says the same exact thing. All day long, people come up to me and say, I'll buy that car from you, but you hold it for me. You would sell that car over and over again. That car would be levered 100 times at least. And my suspicion is that's what's going on in the gold market. So they can put all the security they want. And it's not the point. That genie's out of the bottle. But that's for another podcast. And I'm sorry, because I'm telling you, my head's going to explode. And remember when crude oil went, the front month went to minus $39 a barrel because there was no place to store that shit and nobody could take delivery? There's a flip side of that coin as well. And the flip side is everybody wants delivery of something and there's not enough to get it there. Danny, take us out because I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. No, listen, Porter and Vinny told us, get Luke on your show. He aligns with what you're talking about. You've exceeded those expectations. I've obviously followed you on the Twitter, as Guy likes to call it for a long time, or X, whatever this crappy thing is called now that really doesn't work anymore. And I think you do incredibly thoughtful work. And it's not just because it aligns with how we think, but it certainly reinforces that we aren't crazy. And people should be paying attention to you. Obviously, Luke, you've had your your finger on the pulse for some time, not just recently. So I can't thank you enough for coming on. I know, like I said, a lot of people after this episode are going to be on Investopedia, but instead of doing that, just follow Luke on the Twitter or X, whatever this thing is called, and we'll certainly put that into the notes. So Luke, thanks so much for coming on. We'll have you back when gold hits 2300 in probably a couple months. That sounds great. Thanks for having me on. It was a really fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.